This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the fourth podcast of American History 2. Thank you for joining us once again. As always, I am joined by Dr. Malcolm Craig. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, Mark. And fourth podcast, who would have thought? And approaching nearly a thousand listens. Yeah, and you know, like I did that thing where I like added up all of my family on one hand and all of your family on the other hand, and I'm pretty sure that together they couldn't have came up with as many listens as that. So thanks to everybody that is listening, and we hope you enjoy this podcast. And today we're going to be discussing the American Civil War. And to help us out, we're going to be joined by, by, an, by an esteemed Civil War historian, Dr. David Silkinat. Uh, David teaches a course on the American Civil War here at Edinburgh, um, and among his various pu- publications, he has published a well-received, award-winning book entitled Moments of Despair, Suicide, Divorce and Debt in Civil War Era North Carolina. The topic of which is perhaps the reason why I've heard David describe himself as a, quote, expert on morose things. However, we're anything but morose to have him join us today, and are delighted that he'll be sharing his insights. And also, we want to give a mention to David's podcast, American History Untucked, uh, which is a great listen, uh, especially for those of you who are budding historians and want to get a sense of the, the state of the profession. Uh, David's guests tend to have very interesting research to discuss. Uh, for our European listeners who don't understand the death penalty, uh, the last episode is particularly enlightening. Uh, and on a previous week, you can learn all about how one historian is utilising an iStore app to transform how students study history. Yeah, and I mean, I would, I would second that recommendation. I really enjoy David's podcast. There's some really interesting conversations. And as Malcolm says, particularly for those of you who are budding historians out there and want to get a kind of feel for the lay of the land and how the profession's developing. Um, so Malcolm, just before we, we kind of get David, David in and get his take on the Civil War and we dive into the, the draft rights, which is what we're going to look at this week. I was hoping uh, you could do another splendid job of breaking down what's happened since we left off with, you know, Andrew Jackson sending the Native Americans west. Um, You know, take us, in two minutes again, from 1837 to 1861. William Henry Harrison, John Tyler, James K. Polk, Zachary Taylor, Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, and James Buchanan. Most of those are presidents only remembered by historians. That's a role of honour right there. It's a role of honour, great presidential success. Uh, possibly the most successful in terms of the policy that he actually wanted to enact when he came to office and did enact when he came to office was James K. Polk. Uh, he came to office after the 1844 election. And what follows is very important for the onset of the Civil War. Essentially, Polk goes to war with Mexico. He has an army to do it for, but Polk goes to war with Mexico. <laughs> this comes after the 1845 annexation of Texas by the United States. Mexico still considers Texas part of Mexico. Uh, and as a result of the war, which is you know, a fairly complicated affair in its, and of itself, the United States essentially gains the modern state of what is now New Mexico, uh, and big chunks of California. 
from the from the Mexicans at the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Uh, so pretty important. Pretty important, yes. So again, the US expands towards the Pacific, getting more territory towards the Pacific in the West, all that kind of thing. Mexico is pushed south. What this leads to is the Compromise of 1850, because they have to make a decision on whether these new territories and new states are going to be slave states or free states. And there's something called the Compromise of 1850 that comes about in the wake of the Mexican-American War. California is admitted as a state, as a free state, but as the quid pro quo for this, a much stronger Fugitive Slave Act is passed by Congress, and the Utah and New Mexico territories will decide their approach to slavery based on popular sovereignty. Now, it's really getting messy by this it's stage. It's very yeah. messy. It's made even messier by the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. This giant territory of Nebraska is split into two, what will become the states of Kansas and Nebraska. And again, the idea of popular sovereignty. The people who are there will get to decide whether it's slavery state, slave state or free state in Kansas and Nebraska. And this leads to a mini-civil war in Kansas called mm-hmm. Bleeding Kansas. Mm-hmm. And essentially there is a lot of violence and bloodshed goes on over the issue of slavery or not slavery, uh, that kind of thing. At the same time uh, as the Compromise of 1850 is taking place, we also see a very important event for the United States in the form of the gold rush in California. Sounds slightly happier. It's, well, I mean, slightly happier. So the, uh, 1849 to 52, a quarter of a million people go to California to take part uh, in the gold rush. Uh, so we're seeing huge numbers of people travel west uh, across these new territories, across the plains, to California to take part in the gold rush. And California is a free state, isn't it? California yeah. is, a, is a free state, not a slave state. And as one tiny kind of final point, uh, it's where the San Francisco 49ers, American football team, get the name from, is the 49 gold rush. Oh, I actually never knew that. The 49ers were the, were the original gold rush miners who went out there. Uh, Finally, we have the last presidential election before the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln, as everyone knows, wins, comes president in 1861, but in between him winning the election and him actually entering office, secession begins, and essentially the Civil War is on. Yeah, and I mean, what we're going to be talking about today, I mean, I don't think there are many people that are going to be listening that we need to explain how important the Civil War is. And the Civil War is still the deadliest conflict in American history. More, Amer- yeah. more Americans yeah. die than in any other conflict because they're fighting each other. Yeah, and at this point it is basically, you know, if the, if the North don't win this, there's no longer the United States of America. Although there is, it's just much smaller. And there's going to be, and you, you have two countries in the Confederate States of America. Um, but we're, we're going to leave that there before, and we're going to get David's take on things now because he is, he is far more uh, knowledgeable on these matters than we are. And we're, we're going to delve in a wee bit more to look at how the, the, the people in the North, you know, who we, we kind of think is united in saving the Union, perhaps they actually weren't. Okay, so uh, now that now that Dave has joined, you, joined us, and while we have you on, it'd be great to quickly kind of get your take on the Civil War more broadly. Um, you know, we like to try and piece significant events in American history together on this podcast. So I'm going to try and uh, go and turn to a question that our previous guest, Jane Judge, Suggested for today's show, and as a revolutionary scholar, she wanted me to ask you if we can see the principle of secession as basically the same for the justification of the revolution. I.e., is this a kind of contract that's been broken um, with with the democratic people, and therefore that's the justification for breaking away? Uh, so, some of the people in the South 
thought so. I mean, they, they saw themselves as being inheritors in some ways of a certain kind of revolutionary ethos. I mean, they saw themselves as descendants of Jefferson and Washington and you know, the, the, the Virginia founders in particular. Um, so there's a, ways, there's a way in which there is a connection between, um, at least in their minds, between what they were uh, doing and what had happened uh, a generation or two earlier. Um, of course, people in the North also thought they were inheritors of the Revolution, so it's not as mm-hmm. if, yeah. you know, it's, uh, they, the Southerners had the sole claim to being the inheritors of the Revolution. One of the things some scholars have noted is this is a, unlike the revolution that happened, uh, you know, a generation or two beforehand, this was in some ways a, a, revolu- a conservative revolution, a revolution intended to preserve the status quo rather than to bring about a, a new kind of society. I mean, I think the founders in the American Revolution saw themselves in part as trying to build a, a society that was better and different than the one that had come before it. Um, whereas the founders of the Confederacy see uh, themselves as trying to preserve a system that they think is good but is under threat, which is a sort of different model of how a revolution is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting speech, and I think this is one of the speeches that, that I think many people have been tutorials, uh, by Alexander Stevens, who is the vice president of the Confederacy, and he talks uh, there about what he sees as the cornerstone of the Confederacy, which he labels as uh, enslavement and, 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 and white supremacy as being the, the cornerstone of what the Confederacy is about. And he, he talks there about the relationship between their revolution and the revolution of 1776. And he basically calls out Thomas Jefferson, says Thomas Jefferson got it wrong. He said all men are created equal. He says our revolution is founded upon the the opposite principle that people are not created equal. Um, and so, so there are ways in which there are connections, both historical connections and, and sort of psychic collections, yeah. uh, connections between those two revolutions. Uh, but they're fairly different animals in all kinds of ways. Yeah, and I mean, you have to be pretty confident in yourself if you're taking on Thomas Jefferson, don't you? Um, You know, especially a man of the South, Thomas Jefferson. Um, And just before we kind of dive uh, more into the specific topic we're going to look at today, you know, as someone that, uh, you know, you went to the grad school in the South in North Carolina, I mean, what does the Civil War still mean in that region? I mean, you kind of hear stories of people still referring to it as the War of Northern Aggression. Yeah, um, so I, I've spent a decent amount of my, I'm not from the South originally, I'm from New York City, um, and lived in the North for, for most of my childhood, but I uh, went to university in the South, my wife is from the South, the children are born in the South, mm-hmm. went to grad school in the South, taught high school for a while in the South, so I've spent most of my adult life living um, in the South, and uh it's uh, you know the Civil War. I think it is is still present. If you can you know talk mm-hmm. about the past being present, uh, you know more so than most of American history. 
uh, you'll see echoes of it everywhere you go. Um, the entrance to the campus of the grad school I went is a large statue of a Confederate soldier. Um, I think debates about whether or not to take that statue down over the years. And the Mississippi state flag. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, there's you see Confederate flags everywhere. You see well, not everywhere. You see you see Confederate flags on a fairly regular basis. Um, although I've seen a Confederate flag here in Edinburgh too, so I'm not quite sure. <laughs> symbol that has. Um, you know, multiple meanings and then used in different ways by different people. Um, so it's it's uh, you know a, a a point in which you know the the past intrudes upon the present. You know the highways are named after you know Jefferson Davis or mm-hmm. Robert E. Lee, or high schools are named after you know, various uh, Confederate figures. Um, how people interpret these symbols, though, I think. Uh, you know, it means different things to different people. And yeah. A good example of this, I think, uh, I used, a long time ago, I used to teach high school in, in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, Jacksonville, for those of you who aren't familiar with Florida geography, is the northern, easternmost city in Florida, right south of the Georgia border. It's culturally, actually, more like South Georgia. Um, for those people, those kinds of distinctions mean something. Uh, and I was teaching at a predominantly white uh, high school, and I, I noticed uh, coming to work one day that there was a Confederate bumper sticker, you know, the flags on a, on somebody's car, and I decided to ask my class what they thought that meant. Like, well, you know, why did you? Why would somebody do that? Um, and, and, and the response from my white students, uh, you know, was that, you know, what that meant to them was that they had pride in the South, pride in being Southern. They didn't mean any kind of racial connotation by it. Um, you know, that it wasn't a racist symbol per se. Um, and, uh, sort of after about five minutes of the white students saying this, the, the one black student in the class who was sitting in the back, sitting in the back, raised his hand and said, you know, I have a real problem with that. You know, when I come to mm-hmm. school and I see that on the car, I do not feel welcome here. Uh, the, the, and, you know, these were high school students, and so their vision of, uh, you know, they were, I think the white students were very surprised by the fact that, that one of their classmates was seeing that symbol and having it mean something very different. So it's a symbol that, you know, has a number of, of different meanings attached to it, and, and uh, sort of disentangling those can be very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the same, I always, always wondered, like, being Austin and driving down, like, Robert E. Lee Boulevard, how you would feel as, like, you know, an African-American yeah. or something to yeah. be doing that. Well, there's lots of places where those kinds of things intersect, and one of the more interesting places uh, is in a place called Monument Boulevard in Richmond, uh, which is uh, one of the sort of main... Uh, thoroughfares through the city and in the 19th century they put up a number of the uh, 19th and very early part of the 20th century I think they put up a number of statues of important confederate leaders uh, they've got one of you know, Lee and they've got one of Stonewall Jackson and all these other you know, prominent confederates and then um, I want to say about 15 years ago they decided to add another statue of Arthur Ashe, who was oh, a, <laughs> from Richmond, 
but he's a black tennis player. And so, you know, the people put up, so we're, we're trying to commemorate the whole history of Richmond. And there's been controversy about, okay, what does it mean to put a black tennis player um, on this road, which all the other statues are white Southerners who, who fought a war to protect slavery. Um, so it's something that the, it's the past that the South is still wrestling with. Um, yeah, some people are wrestling. You know, the South I think is more racially progressive now than it was even a couple of decades ago. But it's still a topic that has you know, a special currency in the South. Yeah, for all the life of me there, I thought you were going to say Martin Luther King, not Arthur Ashe. So that was kind of surprising. So if we if we kind of go into the the, the New York draft riots. And and northern northern opposition with like opposition within the north mm. to to the conflict and so they don't for those of you that don't know the New York draft riots take place over four days in July of eighteen sixty three and with about one hundred and twenty die two two thousand wounded in the nation's biggest metropolis as it was then um, and before we go on to talk about the riots so maybe it's best just to kind of get an understanding of dissent that took place within the north. Mm. Um, David, I don't know if you could talk, like, give us a kind of wee short introduction as to who the Copperheads were, yeah. um, and what type of influence they enjoyed in the North. You know, well, so one of the interesting things about the Civil War is that it's a war between two democracies. You know, and that you know, as a war between democracies, part of of what you, the leaders of those the both the Union and the Confederacy had to do is not only defeat the enemy but maintain the kind of political support on the home front that you need to to fight the war. Uh, and both the Union and the Confederacy, to different degrees and in different ways, you know, had to struggle with not only the, the, the front lines, but the, the, the politics of the home front. Um, so who are, who are the, you know, in, in the North, the, the main opposition uh, party uh, to the war uh, were some Democrats that were called Copperheads, and, and they were called Copperheads because they were like snakes in the grass, and mm-hmm. that was sort of where the metaphor came from and there are lots of different people who are copperheads but basically they are democrats who are against the war uh, why are they against the war well, some of them are against the war because they uh, don't want to fight a war for slavery mm-hmm. they don't necessarily think the war is winnable um, and at various points in the war it does not look like the war is winnable or it looks like the war may be winnable but the death toll will be such that it's not worth it um, you know, some of them are driven by racist motivations. Some of them are driven by, you know, other kinds of political motivations. Uh, the Copperhead movement, uh, if you can call it that, you know, was oftentimes calling for negotiated peace with the South um, to end the war, and they start, you know. Having a, a decent amount of political success, especially on the local level, in, in 1862 and 1863, um, they're especially strong in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about sometimes it's easier to, to distinguish, you know, say northern states and southern states, but oftentimes there are people from the South who are living in the southern part of Indiana, southern part of Illinois, southern part of Ohio. Uh, there also seems to be a decent amount of copperheadism in in, uh, in New York, 
Um, and so there's, there's lots of reasons that people in the North would oppose this war. Um, how that connects to the draft riots is, is, is sometimes, you know, the, what's motivating the draft riot in 63, some of it's political, but there's a bunch of other sort of motivations behind people's opposition to the draft uh, and, and the start of forcing people into the Union Army in 1863. Is there kind of... Well, is, is it fair to say that some of the kind of dissent that we find in the home front, from the, you know, the Copperhead point of view, stems from the rather murky Union aims in the Civil War? Certainly, from the, you know, at the outset. I mean, is it about the Union, about slavery? Is it about Lincoln's ego, as some of the Copperheads? Well, argue? they really hate Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, and you know, part of what they their claims about Lincoln is they see Lincoln as overreaching. They see Lincoln as exceeding his constitutional authority. Um, you know, they look at things like the Emancipation Proclamation. They say, where does the president have the power to do that? They look at Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus. Uh, this is one of those places where the Constitution's language is probably not was worded as well as probably should have been, because the Constitution talks about the right of habeas corpus being suspended, but it doesn't say who has the power to do that or why. <laughs> That's useful. Which, well, you know, they yeah. only had a summer to write the yeah. thing. So, you know, it's a, uh, they overlooked that. And so Lincoln suspends habeas corpus in various places, especially in Maryland, which had lots of Southern supporters in it. And obviously if Maryland were to leave the Union, then, you know, all kinds of bad things would have happened because that would have meant that the Union capital was inside other Confederates, inside Confederate states, which would have been an obvious disaster. But Lincoln also suspends habeas corpus in other places. And say, look at Lincoln and think of him as a tyrant. Uh, one of the things Lincoln has been criticized for um, by historians, especially recently, is how Lincoln responds to Copperhead criticism. He, um, the Lincoln government uh, jails a number of Copperhead newspaper publishers, usually very briefly, um, but on the grounds that their criticism was detrimental to the war effort. Um, you know, and I think a lot of those people who are looking at, at Lincoln's v- policy on Copperheads are doing so in the light of, you know, how the government dealt with the anti-war movement uh, during Iraq and Afghanistan and mm-hmm. looking at how does yeah. the government deal with you know, locking people up without habeas corpus, which sounds in some ways uh, not that dissimilar from putting people in Guantanamo Bay. Yeah. And actually, uh, one of the things that happened in Guantanamo Bay is, you know, when the Bush administration was trying to find a legal justification for, for locking people up without a trial, uh, they said, oh, well, Lincoln did it. <laughs> and, I mean, their argument was yeah. more than that, but, but a small part of their argument was, Lincoln did it. If Lincoln did it, it must be okay, right? Uh, which yeah, is not necessarily a good mode of legal argument, but it's a... Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I never actually heard of that. I mean, I think in, in terms of the the Lincoln angle as well, I find that it, what I've labelled the curious case of Congressman Clement Vallandigham, if that's yeah. how you pronounce his name. You know, so he was a guy that was arrested and convicted of treason by a military court. Lincoln decides to commute his sentence. He goes... To Canada, well, he comes he, back. He gets deported <laughs> yeah. to the Confederacy. Yeah, you know, so he, he's very um, 
critical Lincoln. He thinks that it should be treated. Yeah, yeah, treated with the con- uh, Confederacy to recognize Confederate independence, and you know, Lincoln's what Lincoln does with him is, is kind of interesting. I mean, they convict him of, of treason, um, and they could have jailed him or executed him or something. But they decided to deport him to the Confederacy to say, "Well, you, you know, uh, you love the Confederacy much. so much." <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> basically, but the, you know, of course, the thing is, once he does that, he can't really come back to Ohio and 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 function as a legitimate political candidate in Ohio anymore. So it's um, but he gets the Democrats' nomination, doesn't he, in eighteen sixty three? But then gets. Destroyed the battle. Like ninety six percent of soldiers vote for the Republican, and, yeah. this, and that's a quite interesting angle I found on the on the Copperheads is how much the soldiers, the Union soldiers, hate these people back home. That they might they might have even been Democrats yeah. when they went off to fight. Yeah, yeah. But they're hearing what these Copperheads are saying, so, and it feels like a betrayal. Well, there are a couple of things that are happening with soldiers in, in the war that that even people who would have been sympathetic to the Copperheads before they go off to fight. When they go off to fight, I think they see Copperheads as disrespecting the sacrifice of soldiers. You know, when they say, you know, look, we're not fighting for anything that's worth fighting for, and you've had your people in your regiment die, then you're, what you're hearing is the Copperheads saying that these people died for no reason, which is not something you want to hear if you're a soldier. The other thing that happens with Union soldiers is when Union soldiers, especially from places like Indiana or Ohio, go into the South, they oftentimes had very little experience with African Americans beforehand, very little knowledge of slavery. And so when they go off to fight in the South, they start to see what slavery is really for the first time. And this firsthand experience, seeing the horrors that slavery enacted upon black people, makes them much more sympathetic to the plight of slaves than they had been beforehand. And so the Union Army becomes radicalized, becomes much more in favor of abolition as a whole. They're obviously different soldiers respond in different ways. Um, but the Union soldiers often support Lincoln um, and the Lincoln's administration's policies because of the sort of galvanizing experience of, of seeing slavery firsthand. So is there violence against the Copperheads in the North? In terms of getting beaten up in the street or attacked? Or no. Or well, so I mean, the, who is a Copperhead and who's not a Copperhead? This is, you know, so there are... I can't think of any cases where, where Copperheads, you know, people who are merely politically opposed to the war are, are attacked. Um, Sometimes the other way around, though. I mean, and that may be... That brings us to the draft rights because here, I mean, you have people who are against the war attacking, uh, people who are trying to enforce the draft, and well, also, although you know what happens in the draft riot, yeah, isn't necessarily people who are against the war. There are people who don't want to be drafted, mm-hmm. um, which is a slightly different phenomenon, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you know, the way the union draft worked, and uh, essentially was that. If your congressional district didn't recruit enough soldiers, and they had quotas for mm. each of the congressional districts, and this is in eighteen sixty-three, yeah, just so yeah, uh, so it's about like halfway yeah. through the war. Yeah, um, if your district didn't recruit enough soldiers, then uh, they would 
try to make up the deficit by by drafting a certain number of people to meet the quota. Right. If you were, were wealthy enough, you could have paid to be to get out of the draft, and there was a I think it was a three hundred dollar fee or something, which. Um, all right, with the three hundred dollars, yeah, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, which was well beyond what most working class people could pay, uh, and so part of their opposition to the draft is, look, why am I going to fight in this war when other wealthier people are not? Um, and and so it, it's a it's a, their opposition to the draft is in part a class based animosity. Um, as much as it is about the politics of the war. Um, you know, if you think about who gets targeted in the draft, right? I mean, they're obviously targeting, you know, the, the draft office and things like that, but they're also often targeting African-Americans. Yeah. And so there's ways in which, you know, lower-class New Yorkers who are, you know, struggling economically, Look at African Americans. Say, like, well, what's going to happen if, if if we win this war? If slavery is abolished, are they going to come and take my job from me? Now I'm being drafted into this fight. Wealthy people are getting out of it, and by paying a commutation, I, on the other hand, am not going to be able to get out of it. Um, and and so there's there's lots of motivations that that push this to happen. Yeah, and it's I mean it's it's interesting the sort of race angle you bring up. I mean what why. One of our listeners, a friend of mine called Fraser, pointed out that there's a coffee shop in Glasgow, and for those of you that haven't guessed, we record this in Scotland, so just to kind of <laughs> give, a, give an angle on it. I mean, and it's called McCoon Smith, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the first African-American with science degree. And uh, Fraser was actually pointing out to me that the reason that he, he has to leave New York because he is working at the orphanage mm. that gets burned down. And you know these uh, the the rioters don't even let a fire engine try and put a, a fire at an orphanage. You know mm-hmm. to stress that the so the black orphanage, and so like like McCunsimus was actually working there, one of the most more more renowned African Americans. So I thought it'd be a nice wee anecdote just to kind of show sure. the relevancy of it. But I think Malcolm, you had a point you wanted to well, raise. I was just interested in the point of that you made about you know the, the people who are doing the rioting and the draft. Yeah. I mean, how ma- how many of them are relatively recent immigrants into New York who maybe don't have as much of a stake in the union. Yeah, so um, figuring out who can, can constitutes a riot can be difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, simply as a historical methodological problem, rioters tend not to, you know, Put their name down on a list. Um, <laughs> they don't subsequently kind of go, so job riot. <laughs> it's on the census in 1860. Yeah. Um, so a, a, a number of them appear to be poor, a number of them appear to be immigrants, um, a number of them, you know, especially immigrants from Ireland. This is obviously the great age of, of Irish immigration. Um, there were in New York. Uh, prior to the Civil War, all kinds of essentially mini riots that were a regular feature of New York life. So it's not as if this was an entirely peaceful town that becomes a violent place. It's a violent town that sort of stays violent. Uh, for those of you who are looking for uh, cinematic enjoyment over the weekend, uh, there is a moderately decent movie, um, both in its historical accuracy and its cinematic quality, called Gangs of New York that came out 
10 years ago? Well, uh, at least 10 years ago, yeah. And I'm not the only one. But uh, the, the movie is what well, ends with the, the draft riot, and the scene at the end of the draft riot is actually kind of confusing. Uh, but the, the central story is about the tensions between the Irish immigrants in, in New York City and the native born inhabitants of New mm-hmm. York City, and, and the ways in which ideas about nativism, class, immigration, local identity, national identity, um, sort of all yeah. come to play against each other. Uh, but you would have had street gangs in New York fighting against each other. You mentioned the fire department. You actually have fire departments fighting against yeah. each other. <laughs> the way that the way that uh, fire protection worked in the New York City at the time was basically if you uh, wanted to have fire protection, you had to pay the fire or private fire company. It wasn't a city one then. You had to pay a fire company to get a sign put up on your building. Saying that you had paid to have fire protection, and fires were fairly common in, uh, in early nineteenth century New York, and and so if you paid that and and your house caught on fire, the fire company that you paid would come and show up and 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 put it out. If you didn't, the fire company would show up and say, "Our fee for putting out your fire now is, you know, yeah. twice yeah. that." That's and then it. sometimes there would be competing fire companies that would, you know battle for who's going to put out the fire and, and collect the extortion money. Um, that just sounds like a system that's open for a piece of Firemen standing outside someone's warehouse going, you know, one drop match and that place could go up. Uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Corruption on all levels was, was fairly rampant in New York uh, at the time. Political corruption was... Yeah, par for the course. In fact, that was actually most of the city yeah. government was. Boss tweets about to well, rise out of well, yeah, so, 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 yeah. yeah, we'll, we'll talk in lecture briefly about sort of the kinds of corrupt machine politics that is sort of generally a, a feature of American cities in the nineteenth century. So, is the draft riot in that case actually, in terms of what it is, a fairly unexceptional event in the history of New York? In, um, t- in terms of it being kind of this, you know, rioting and. Rowdy behavior. Sure. Or all that kind um, of thing. Well, I mean, the scale of it, I think, is is particularly right. noteworthy. Uh, you know, it, it, it it's most street riots in New York were not of, of that scale. Most of them didn't have the sort of broader national repercussions than the draft riot had in New York. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you think about when the draft riot happens in New York, it happens basically. You know, it's right at the beginning of the Union draft, so that's a sort of critical point about mm-hmm. how, how is how are people in the going to respond to this. It happens basically at the same point that black soldiers start to get enlisted in the Union Army, and obviously, and, and some of the tensions that manifest themselves in the riot are about black citizenship, black military service, um, blacks participation in the country as a whole, and so part of the reason why African Americans get targeted be off of that. It's also immediately after this Union victory at Gettysburg, mm-hmm. and actually they have to bring in soldiers from Gettysburg to put down the riot in New York. Um, so you can almost imagine sort of a Union yeah. invasion of southern Manhattan to yeah. occupy... Uh, and you can imagine these soldiers weren't in the mood to be messing about either, having just experienced Gettysburg, you know. Yeah, I think they're. It was, uh, yeah, it wasn't. A, yeah, so it, it was. It was kind of a mess. Yeah, I mean, uh, the New York one. I mean, I find fascinating, and it's 
I think it was actually is it Irv, Irv Bernstein I think he made the point that sort of three tensions are going on you know you've got the wealthy versus the poor the black versus mm. the white and the sort of federal versus state or local power yeah. kind of going on but I mean they also I mean New York's got a copperhead governor for example yeah. you know the Horatio Seymour who will run on the 1868 yeah. ticket against um, Ulysses S. Grant yeah, yeah. Um, and, and lose quite and, handily. And the mayor of New York <laughs> yeah. was, was a Democrat and not sympathetic with the war effort and all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, you know, now thinking about, you know, tensions with drafts, I mean, the, the, the northern tension with draft is best manifested in New York. The Confederate draft was actually even more heavy-handed. I mean, the Confederacy starts a draft in 1862, so a year earlier. Mm-hmm. And the way the Confederate draft worked uh, was essentially they said all men between the ages of, I think it was like 18 and 40, and they later expanded it to being 16 to 55 or something. So, you know, gradually the scope of the draft expanded. They said all of you are in the military unless you have a specific exemption. Uh, so it was a much, whereas the Union draft is selecting individual people, the Confederate draft is saying, Every, all the men of that generation are in the army. Is there not a 20? So, if you but, own so 20 one of the men. exceptions, right, there were a couple of exceptions if you're mm-hmm. obviously physically unable to fight or what have you, um, was one of them. But one of the more controversial exemptions was that if you were overseeing 20 slaves, then you were exempt from the draft. And they actually later lowered that to 15, I believe. And the rationale for this was, of course, having a bunch of slaves who are not supervised. Is not a, no no right. um, and, and so you know, what lots of poor white southerners said is like look I'm going here to I'm being forced to fight in a war to defend slavery do I own any slaves no am I likely to ever own slaves no and not only am I fighting this war for causes that I don't necessarily directly benefit from, but that some of the people who are directly benefiting from it are not fighting. And so there was there, there was claims made in both the North and the South that this was a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. Um, yeah, I mean, and the, the one thing that, especially about the kind of draft riots and, um, and more broadly that's, and Copperheads, it's quite fascinating is the fact is how the historiography kind of went completely silent for a long time. Like for, I mean, mm-hmm. I think it I mean, Joanne, Joan Cashin talking about the like deserters and, and draft dodgers and stuff, you know, sites that like previous work was by, you know, Ella Lon in the 1920s. And she, Lon, puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that immigrants were the, the kind of the poor, the poorer soldiers more likely to desert and stuff, you know, not hardly a surprise for 1920s thought. And uh, the Copperhead work by Jennifer Weber, it's a fantastic book on that. You know, she points out the last work on that was in the 1960s. 1960, and they were just looking at whether copperheads were this sort of conspiracy that yeah. copperheads were fired in the rear. They weren't actually. I mean, why? Why are copperheads? Because in reading it, I found both those books fascinating. Why mm. has it been ignored? I mean, I think Jennifer Weber's kind of idea was just basically that because they lost yeah. so greatly, that's why we've forgotten about them. But so, part of the reason why I think the copperheads are, have you know have not received as much scholarly attention. Uh, until Jennifer Weber's book, which is an excellent book, uh, is I think a lots of people really like Lincoln. He's mm-hmm. a very, you know, and um, Lincoln is 
you know, the most written about figure in American history for a reason. I think he's a very charismatic, dynamic, captivating figure. Um, and, and consequentially, copperheads are the people who oppose Lincoln, and they are, uh, on the whole, far less charismatic and engaging, uh, especially to, to modern audiences. Um, and how extensive the copperhead movement was, I think a lot of historians had sort of minimized how powerful they were. Uh, and and you know, Weber makes the argument that, especially uh, in a number of locations, you know, copperheads were very powerful, and the copperhead mm-hmm. movement was far more widespread than than lots of people had uh, previously thought. So, as a kind of final kind of concluding point, so the copperheads ultimately they kind of fail because the North continues to prosecute yeah. the war. Lincoln's reelected in eighteen sixty four, yeah. and you know, part of the reason why Lincoln is reelected, uh, we should mention the soldiers. And the other reason why Lincoln gets reelected in sixty four is because the Union Army starts to do well, right? At one point in the in the summer of eighteen sixty four, in which it looks like the Lincoln administration is going to lose, yeah. uh, he drafts up plans, doesn't he, so that he can pass them to McClellan mm-hmm. and they can Mc- work Mc- together yeah, better. McClellan with McClellan was his the, opponent, the former general who was mm-hmm. the Democratic candidate, and, Demo- and McClellan wasn't a copyright. He wasn't a mm-hmm. peace. He was a war Democrat, but he obviously had very different positions in Lincoln and all number of questions, especially slavery. And then Sherman takes Atlanta. And then all of a sudden, the, the political equations change. So, but the Copperheads are actually a threat to to the North and their and their warriors. Well, you know, it's a threat to the North if you, if you if you think solely from the perspective of Lincoln. If you think about you know what if you think about the North as being a democracy then something is a threat to democracy only if they seek to undermine democracy. And if you say, well, if the Copperheads would have won, that would have been a uh, potentially a victory for the majority of people who voted for them. Um, so in essence, it's almost a, it's almost a compliment to, to Northern democracy that it was able to go on in the midst of a, you know the, the greatest war in American in history. history yeah. um, that's, yeah, I mean, I never thought we would get a positive out of it, but <laughs> see, that seems a good point. So Jennifer Weber, one of the things she's trying to do is try to say we should take them seriously as political yeah. actors. Um, you know, as much as all of us like Lincoln, or at least the vast majority of us like Lincoln, you know, Lincoln's a political actor in a, in a political theater. Um, mm-hmm. I shouldn't probably mention the word theater and Lincoln in the same sentence. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, that was a bad Lincoln joke. Um, <laughs> But you know, we, we, we the, one of the things that, that I think defines this war, as I mentioned earlier, is the, the ways that, that you know Lincoln has to deal with military problems. He has to deal with political problems. You know, for those people who saw the Lincoln movie um, that Spielberg made a couple of years ago, uh, you know, Lincoln's big battle in that is not with the Confederacy, which by the time that movie takes place, uh, at the end of, of 1864, beginning of 1865. The Confederacy is a, is bound to lose just a matter of, of the the when and the and the how, but his big fight is with Democrats in the North over passage of the Thirteenth Amendment. If you look in the South, Jefferson Davis is struggling with many, not the same issues, but the same kinds of political structures. How do I deal with? People in the South who don't like the way that the war is going, don't think I'm fighting the war the right way. 
How do I deal with the, the state governments? How do I deal with governors who disagree with me on particular policies? Um, Jefferson Davis never had to stand for re-election. They had a, one of the small changes between mm-hmm. the Confederate con- uh, Constitution and the U.S. Constitution was that the Confederate president had a six-year term as opposed to a four-year term. Mm-hmm. But lots of other Confederate leaders did have to stand for election. And sometimes those elections are, are you know, very much shaped by what they thought about the war. And for the most part, democracy on both sides kind of continued mm-hmm. on to the extent that uh, one can have a functional democracy in the midst of a very bloody mm-hmm. war. So, so the lesson of the Civil War is then that, you know, American, the cut and thrust of American politics won't stop for anything. <laughs> um, so that may, that may be one lesson. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, just to conclude this, I mean, I suppose if we're linking ahead to the next, po- the next podcast, we're going to be looking at another kind of non-unappreciated era, the Gilded Age. Um, and one of the things that the Copperheads influenced, but the, the Democrats are tarnished in many yeah. ways with this sort of Copperhead legacy going yeah. forward. I mean, the vice presidential candidate for McClellan, McClellan's ticket was a Copperhead. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, and they'll hardly have a Democratic president apart from the wonderful Grover Cleveland. Um, or at least one <laughs> wonderful mustachioed Grover Cleveland, um, for the next 50 odd years, 30, 40 years. Um, so thanks again for joining Absolutely. us, David. We really appreciated you My coming pleasure. on. Um, thanks again, Malcolm. Uh, we'll be, we'll be hearing a lot more of your voice in the next one. Uh, thanks, <laughs> thanks to David for such yeah. expert commentary on a, yeah. uh, a very complicated area of the, a very complicated conflict. Yeah. And thanks to all of you that have taken the time to listen and we'll see you again in two weeks. Cheers. Cheers.